I'm Owen Lewis, and this is Cornucopia. since Neil Armstrong and the astronauts of Apollo 11 took us on a voyage to the moon, one that allowed us to see the Earth as a fragile orb in a vast black sea. In this episode, our intern Owen Lewis will take us on another voyage, one down to Earth through the foggy haze of trash bins and garbage trucks, incinerators and landfills. In this voyage, we'll come to understand why recycling isn't enough to save this dark beauty of the earth. Not because recycling doesn't work or is too inadequate for the job, but because recycling was never meant to work because recycling is an afterthought. An add-on to our system where single-use throwaway products and built-in obsolescence are the top priority in our linear economy, designed to maximize profits and minimize costs for corporations and private industry, leaving us to clean up all the trash. This is Cornucopia. I'm Owen Lewis. I'm a 20-year-old college student. During my first two semesters at school, the end of 2020 through mid-2021, we had to pick up our food at the dining halls, then take them back to our rooms since we couldn't eat inside. They would be packaged in plastic or cardboard. When I picked up a meal, I would be carrying at least three boxes that I'd later be throwing away. I would eat three times a day most of the time, so that's an average of about nine containers. I'm talking some boxy cardboard ones, others plastic, cylindrical. When I went to throw out these containers every meal, it felt like I was filling up a trash can every time with my plastic salad bowls and cardboard box after cardboard box. And that doesn't even include the drinks. At the dining halls, there would be drink machines, ones that you might find at a fast food restaurant, and uh, towers of plastic cups. People wouldn't generally take more than one per meal, but they'd sell another you know, three cups per student every day. And there were also bottles of water and soda that people would take. Hamilton College is a small school with 2,000 students. It's in central New York. Each day when the dining halls were closed due to the pandemic, we're throwing out about 18,000 containers a day. 18,000 containers a day to feed just 2,000 students. Imagine the volume. You could fill a room every single day, and not a small one either. And this is for a small school. Imagine a big school like Texas A&M with something like 70,000 students. 
that's 35 times more students, 35 times more containers. And Hamilton and Texas A&M, of course, are only a couple of thousands of colleges and universities across the United States. So think about all those other schools operating similarly during COVID-impacted semesters, and you've got billions of single-serve disposable food containers used every day. Billions every single day. Semester after semester, each about 100 days, and you've got hundreds of billions of plastic and cardboard containers used just from colleges and universities in the United States. It's great for the packaging industry, good for social distancing, and it's good for the oil industry. Too often, we forget that plastic is a petrochemical. Petro as in made from oil. We've produced more plastic in the last 10 years than in the previous century. 50% of this plastic is single use, lasting just minutes. Plastic sales, already booming before the pandemic, are now exploding even more. So when you use that Ziploc bag to marinate your famous teriyaki pork tenderloin and you just toss the bag away, stop feeling so smug just because you drive a Prius. And one other thing about plastic and oil, something that's remarkable. Renewable energy continues to reduce demand for fossil fuels. But electric vehicles won't mean big oil will decline. Its future has come to depend on something we all know and love. Plastic. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you. Plastics. Plastic is the future for the oil industry. Experts estimate that in 2050, plastic will account for at least half, I repeat half, of all demand for oil. Expanded growth in the use of plastics, especially in Asia and Africa, all backed by massive lobbying against regulations and phony greenwashed promises, means that the future for big oil remains bright. You're listening to Cornucopia, the cult, culture, and business of food. Follow us wherever you listen. Our website is cornucopiashow.com. Our Twitter is at show. And our mood is cranky. When I was at school, I took care to recycle the recyclable containers. And I even picked up trash I saw on the ground sometimes when I was outside walking. I'm confident I did more than the average person at school. But consider the numbers we've just run through, and this seems laughably futile. Don't get me wrong, I'm not discouraging recycling. I think everyone should do it. But what's the impact? What's the impact of recycling one thing correctly when billions of containers are going around every day? Only 12% of the 60 billion plastic bottles used in the U.S. each year are recycled. 12%. That is less than one out of eight. The 88% that don't get recycled heads to landfills. They get incinerated. Or they become part of the 8 million tons. 8 million tons of plastic added to the oceans every single year. If you're drinking out of a plastic bottle right now, you might want to check out episode 30, The History of Bottled Water. It might make you think twice the next time you buy a plastic bottle. Think about buying a refillable one instead.
This past semester, I ran cross-country, and there were times when I had just finished a race or a hard run, and a plastic water bottle was the nearest water source. So there were times when I would go for those. I'm not perfect, and I'm not trying to tell you to be perfect, but when I have another option to drink from a non-disposable water bottle, I'll do that, and I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb to follow. Reduce, reuse, and of course, recycle too. But as we'll talk about later in this episode, the idea that individual consumers, that means you and me, and even cities and counties can solve the problem of waste fails to place the burden of responsibility where it really belongs. Those manufacturing, retailing, and making billions from all those single-use bottles, plastic containers, obsolete electronics, and all those other goods that are made with nothing but profit margins in mind. Garbage means profit. If we wonder why recycling isn't working, wake up and smell the corporate influence peddling machine. Garbage means profit, not only because those making the stuff get to make more money, manufacturing single-use bottle after single-use bottle, selling us more and more IKEA bookshelves and sofas, convincing us our phones and laptops are obsolete after a few years. Black Friday, one of the largest shopping days. Garbage means profit because those making the stuff don't have to pay for the burden of cleaning it up. But before I leave you so depressed you decide to put on the Britney Spears, stave off your existential dread and depression, grab a beer, light up a joint, at least in the states where it's legal, and after that, if you're not already composting your green waste, and how about you make a plan to start? That's because household green waste emits more carbon than the airline industry. That's right, more carbon than the airline industry. Those banana peels and that rotten zucchini that got lost in the back of the fridge are responsible for 6% of carbon that's warming the globe. Now back to recycling. Is the real problem that people aren't sorting their garbage? Is the problem that too many municipalities and too many people aren't recycling? Or is the real problem the huge amount of trash created every single hour of every single day? Don't go away. Cornucopia will be right back with more. Baby, can't you stay? I'm coming. Don't forget to check out our archives. Most are timeless. Well, classics, really. Well, not really, but as informative today as they were when they first posted. Check out our pilot episode, The History of the Supermarket. And we bet you'll agree. You'd better stop your running around, straighten up and start moving on. But who's gonna take your garbage out when I pack my bags and go? Now, before we can fully understand trash and recycling, let's turn back the clock and take a look at World War II and post-war America. Although the country was slowly emerging from the Depression, when unemployment peaked at 25%, even in 1939, unemployment was still enormous at 14.6%. One of seven Americans were out of a job. Yet thanks to the industrial war machine manufacturing planes, ships, guns, jeeps, weapons, bombs, boots, uniforms, and pretty much anything else you can think of, 
By 1944, unemployment was at a record low 1.2%. But the end of the war threatened the American economy. Millions of former soldiers would be looking for work at a time when American industry was losing its best customer, the Second World War. There was a real possibility that mass unemployment would return to post-war America. As Arthur Herman wrote in his book, Freedom's Forge, U.S. businesses at the time were still, and I'm quoting here, geared around producing tanks and planes, not clapboard houses and refrigerators. But American industry did convert to civilian production. Manufacturing new homes, new types of appliances, home goods, building highways and bridges, and even new types of food. Many born out of innovations developed from the war. And after years of war rationing, when there was very little to buy, Americans were ready to spend and spend and spend. Spurred on by the GI Bill, new mortgages were signed, new suburbs emerged, filled with new homes, new kitchens, new furniture, new cars. Five years ago, this was a vast checkerboard of potato farms on New York's Long Island. Today, a community of 60,000 persons living in 15,000 homes. And lots of new babies, too. That's right. The baby boom had begun. And throughout this era, always in the background, there was a promise. A promise that we all take for granted today. But back then, it was as new as all those new cars and those new suburbs. It was as new as all those little babies. That new promise was convenience. And even though those promises to reduce the time it took to do chores and housework down to minutes a day were nothing more than classic, hurry, step right up American hucksterism, at least for those Americans benefiting from the post-war boom economy, incomes were up, and the future looks bright with new ways to diaper your baby, do your laundry, clean up your house, and cook dinner, too. Say, you gals think you're lucky you can get Swanson TV turkey dinners, but I say Swanson TV turkey dinners are a bigger break for husbands. Now, you take me. I can be early, I can be late, I can bring pals to dinner anytime I please, and get this, my wife never panics. She just takes Swanson TV turkey dinners from the freezing compartment of our refrigerator when I'm a little off schedule. Oh, and right you are, Jack. And that is because Mary Lou knows that she can have a, a swell dinner ready in just 25 minutes. Right. And talk about easy. Well, she just pops Swanson TV turkey dinners in a hot oven. You know, they're oven ready in individual heat and serve trays. Being able to cook a meal in 25 minutes was once considered convenient. Want chicken alfredo for dinner? It's ready in 60 seconds. Two words. Yeah. This is going to be so good yeah. shelf to table in 60 seconds hormel completes fast as f 10 years after the end of the war concerns about the economy were ancient history perhaps best epitomized by a 1955 life magazine cover story on throwaway living the story wasn't as you might think a critique of disposable living but a positive take on it an exciting testament to the ease of a new throwaway era 
Why spend valuable time cleaning plates, silverware, diapers, ashtrays, and even towels when they can just be tossed in the trash after use? Life was one of the nation's top magazines back then and was noted for its photography. The cover featured a surreal photo. A husband and wife, along with a young child, are looking up smiling, arms spread wide. The air is ripe, thick with America's bounty. As hundreds of items fly through the air, the kaleidoscope of paper plates, napkins and towels, plastic cutlery, cups, trays, and frozen foods. Activities that the magazine states would once have taken 40 hours to clean. Except, thanks to the miracle of throwaway living, no housewife, this was the 1950s after all, no housewife needed to bother because you could just use everything once and never need to clean it. Just throw all of it away. Now, of course, this history is far more nuanced. This was at a time when Americans bought milk and glass bottles that required a deposit, repaired broken toasters and radios, patched torn clothes and darned socks, made rags from old shirts and dresses, and passed furniture down from one generation to the next. When takeout food was a rarity bought by people on the road or going on picnics, plastic beverage bottles didn't exist and when credit cards were just invented. And about the only time anyone drank bottled water was from a glass five-gallon jug in a big cooler at the office or the workplace. Yet this was also the era when the die was cast for the don't bother getting it fixed, toss it away. Hell, it's only from Ikea. Let's get a new one. That's why God made credit cards, right? the era when the die was cast for the disposable. This was the genesis of the garbage-making machine that is America today. You're listening to Cornucopia, the cult, culture, and business of food. Follow us wherever you listen. Now, in case you're thinking we're just being dramatic about America's penchant for producing pounds and pounds of trash, let's look at some data. Per capita, Americans produce the most garbage, what's called MSW, municipal solid waste, anywhere in the world. We are number one, churning out trash at three times the global average. That's an estimated four and a half to five pounds every single day for each of us in the US. We produce 12% of all the MSW in the world. We are number one, and since 1990, we've nearly doubled the amount of waste we produce. And from 2018 to 2019, the amount grew by nearly 10%. We're far from alone in making the planet a trash heap and pumping more carbon into the atmosphere. But we are, after all, still number one, making more and more trash every year. But before we get lost in the landfill, Let's ask why nobody was paying attention to all this garbage in the first place. After all, Earth Day was created here in America way back in 1970. 20 million Americans demonstrated. This is a CBS News special. Earth Day, a question of survival. Fairmount Park in Philadelphia today is much like a rock music festival as a teach-in on the environment. This was a time when municipal sewage was drained into rivers all across America. 
A factory or power plant could legally dump toxic waste into streams and rivers. They could send equally toxic clouds of smoke into the air, and there was nothing anyone could do to stop them. These things were as legal as walking your dog or visiting grandma on her birthday. This is what keeps the sun from shining in on Philadelphia. Hundreds of tons of soot, smoke, fly ash, dust, sulfur dioxide, hydrocarbons, metal fumes, organic matter, odors, and malodors on each... During the 40s, 50s, and 60s, river fires happened regularly in Buffalo, Detroit, Pittsburgh, and other industrial waterways throughout America. Most notably, the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland. This from the Cleveland State University Oral History Project, illustrates how polluted and poisonous America's industrial rivers had become. Actually working as a hatch tender on the ships, so it's kind of unusual when somebody would yell fire and tell you to run away from the river, because the river is generally water. The river was like a cauldron. It would just bubble up, oxygen trying to get out of the river. It had a coat of oil on it. And you'd see rats float down the river the size of dogs, bloated from whatever it was that they ingested. And there was a rule that if you fell in the river, you immediately went to the emergency room in the hospital. We have the kind of air and water pollution problems in these cities that are every bit as dangerous to the health and safety of our citizens as any intercontinental ballistic missiles. So people were paying attention, but not to trash. And hard as it is to believe these days, Earth Day and the activism that year actually worked. It worked. A democratically controlled Congress and a Republican president, Richard Nixon, passed landmark legislation creating the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, and soon after even passed two bills the Clean Air and the Clean Water Acts that transformed the environment. The point is, some things have gotten better. Way better. The US EPA last year reduced its restrictions on consuming Cuyahoga River caught fish. Now, more than a dozen breweries in Akron and Cleveland use water sourced from the river to create craft beers. Don't go away. Cornucopia will be right back with more. If you're new to this podcast, don't forget to check out our archives. We do a wide variety of shows exploring the cult, culture, and business of food. If you need a good laugh after this episode, check out The Easter With No Peeps, the first of our Grocery Hell series. And if you or your business is in need of an engaging writer or creative collaborator, get in touch. We're always interested in new projects. When America started paying attention to all the garbage we were making, it wasn't out of concern for the environment. It was because there was a shortage of landfills. No one we know is particularly fond of taking out the garbage. How about the prospect of not being able to get rid of it at all? Between 1982 and 1987, nearly 3,000 municipal landfills had closed, including ones in New York City. In an effort to deal with a shortage of landfills, New York City experimented with sending trash to a town in North Carolina. 
But because of rumors that the garbage included toxic waste, local officials in North Carolina refused to accept the trash, setting off a six-month voyage that made headlines, and at least for a little while, made America think about trash. A garbage barge called the Mobro 4000, filled with 3,100 tons of New York City trash, spent nearly six months, yes, six months, traveling the eastern seaboard and even to Mexico, just looking for a place to unload the trash. The barge has quickly become a symbol of this country's growing problems with trash. Finally, ironically, all that trash just ended up back in New York City. It was incinerated in Brooklyn. And the 430 pounds of ash left over was sent to a landfill in nearby Long Island. This trashy barge of a soap opera had finally brought attention about what to do with all this garbage. But there is another reason why America wasn't concerned about trash back then. And no, it's not because we had not yet become a nation of shopaholics. It's not even because the things we bought cost more and that we kept them for longer. But it was because our attention was diverted somewhere else. Bit by bit, every litter bit hurts. Don't be a litter bug. Help keep America beautiful. Our attention was on litter bugs. People throwing trash out car windows, in our parks, and on our streets. Our attention was about keeping America beautiful by making sure people didn't litter. This ad and the campaign, which continues today, was created by an organization called Keep America Beautiful. According to their website, it was founded in 1953 by a group of corporate and civic leaders seeking to develop and promote a national cleanliness ethic. Now, if you believe or believed that, you're certainly not alone. Tell most people who grew up watching these ads in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that the anti-litter campaign was created by two packaging companies in response to a Vermont law banning single-use glass bottles, and they're likely to look at you in shock. But the Keep America Beautiful campaign was in fact started by two packaging companies who wanted us to throw as much shit away as we could. As noted on NPR's throughline, the Keep America Beautiful campaign was a classic flipping of the script. The problem wasn't all this trash. It was, it was just where people put it. People littering were the problem, not single-use bottles and cans. You can hardly see the forest for the trash. But one thing's clear. America's litter problem is in your hands. Keeping America clean and beautiful is your job. These packaging giants the American Can Company, and the Owens Illinois Glass Company were unsurprisingly joined by Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, and the Dixie Cup Company in this effort as well. Now, Keep America Beautiful's campaign effort to keep our attention away from the actual amount of garbage we were making in America every day had a receptive audience. Litter was a huge problem, huge. And people felt good about keeping the country clean. What's more, it became a source of civic pride, too. The most infamous of all their advertisements, offensive and ridiculous for multiple reasons, the so-called crying Indian, was also considered the most effective. 
It featured a Native American canoeing past litter in the water into an industrial canal and eventually standing on the side of a packed highway only to have a bag of fast food tossed out of a sedan land right onto his leather moccasins. Some people have a deep abiding respect for the natural beauty that was once this country. And some people don't. People start pollution. People can stop it. Now, if you thought the Keep America Beautiful campaign was a classic misdirect, a purposeful distraction, making people ignore all the garbage we were producing as long as our highways were free of litter. A 2020 joint investigation by NPR and PBS revealed an even bigger corporate scam. The investigation reveals that despite the fact that for decades, plastic manufacturers have publicly promoted recycling, as early as the 1970s, plastic industry executives expressed doubts about the viability of plastic recycling, which they noticed was expensive and difficult and might never be feasible. Not only did they cover up their doubts and tout recycling in order to overcome concern about plastic waste, the industry also developed the numeric references on plastic packaging that they claimed was necessary for proper recycling. The growth of plastic and packaging and products was based on the big lie that it could be recycled with relative ease. Keep America Beautiful continues its efforts today. We don't clean up communities just to keep America beautiful. We clean up so Americans can do beautiful things. When your park is clean, the kid comes out to play. Keep America Beautiful has created hundreds of state and local programs, offering dozens of nice-sounding anti-litter plans as alternatives to beverage container deposit legislation and other government regulations that would make companies producing containers, packaging, and other trash responsible for that trash. But while it was a pioneer in 1953, these days it's a small fry among many giants in this now nauseatingly common corporate charade, which disguises what's good for private profits to look like something that is good for America. Corporate lobbying under the guise of pseudo-environmental organizations has killed hundreds of laws. Most recently, a 2020 California law that would have been the most rigorous ban on single-use plastic. Today, the state Senate rejected a bill that would have phased out. Fails to pass by four votes in the state Senate. The opposition was led by Californians for Recycling and the Environment, which was actually formed by packaging manufacturers and other business interests. As noted in Talking Trash, the corporate playbook to false solutions for the plastic crisis, published in 2020 by the Changing Markets Foundation, for decades, giant food and beverage corporations have made grand promises to reduce plastic waste, increase the use of recycled content, and improve the recyclability of packaging without actually doing anything to fulfill these promises. They also simultaneously work diligently with lobbyists, trade organizations, and phony green-sounding groups to block legislation to limit single-use plastics and issues around recycled content so they could continue using their cheap, disposable plastic packaging to keep their costs down. 
The report singles out Coca-Cola, along with PepsiCo and Danone, the French multinational, which produces Danon, Stonyfield, and Activia yogurt, as well as other brands, for being the worst of the world's many two-faced corporate liars. And of course, the rationale for this two-faced bullshit is simple. As noted by the BBC... Single-use plastic is just a massive money saver for all sorts of companies, including Coca-Cola. They use incredibly cheap plastic to make that packaging. They put it on the market and then it's job done. It's gone. Survey after survey, both here in the U.S. and around the world, show an overwhelming percentage of people, upwards of 80%, who want single-use plastics banned. So corporations pretend to care. Listen to this from a Coca-Cola public relations film. My name is Bruce Karras. I'm the Vice President of Environment and Sustainability with Coca-Cola North America. With packaging, one of the risks is that if packaging isn't properly handled, it does become branded trash. And people see it and recognize it as something related to the company. That's not what we want. It's a big issue. Coca-Cola pretends to care But starting in 1990, the world's leading plastic polluter has made numerous pledges to reduce plastic waste and has failed to fulfill every single one of them. In 1991, Coke introduced bottles made from 25% recycled plastic, but three years later phased them out. They were too expensive. Next, every bottle in America would contain 10% recycled plastic by 2005. The result was just 4% recycled material. Next, the company pledged that all bottles would contain 25% recycled plastic by 2015, but they again failed, reaching just 7% of plastic material recycled. And just this year, the world's leading plastic polluter once again made a grand promise. By 2030, 25% of their bottles would be recycled plastic. You're listening to Cornucopia, the cult, culture, and business of food. Our website is cornucopiashow.com. Our Twitter is at cornucopiashow. And our mood is cranky, with a plop dollop or sousson of humor. Reduce, reuse, and recycle. Remember that reducing waste is first in that list for a very good reason. Recycling, good as it is, still emits greenhouse gases. It's why recycling is number three, third on this list. Given the climate crisis, we won't spend any time detailing the relative success of recycling because that's yesterday's news. Problems start with the fact that thousands of state, county, and municipal jurisdictions create their own rules. Logistics, which we all dread, are often daunting. Once this wasn't the case, but it was way back in World War II, 
when there was a nationwide campaign to collect and recycle tin, rubber, steel, paper, and other raw materials. Posters and newsreels promoted the effort, described why it was needed, and as much as you can believe it, people enjoyed doing this too. We, the people of the United States, have had a land of plenty. We had resources to burn, and we burnt them. And while we were throwing away, the Axis was picking up. Germany and Japan scrimped while we squandered. Today, we need many of those common things we used to throw away. We need them desperately. Now, wartime comparisons invariably suffer. The idea of a common good is much harder to come by. Today in the US, only 10 states have bottle bills. And for the most part, they haven't been hugely successful. But does this mean that recycling doesn't work? That's not the right question. Because as stated at the beginning of this episode, recycling was never meant to work. Recycling was an afterthought, an add-on to our system of built-in obsolescence and single-use throwaway products that are the top priority in our linear economy, designed to maximize profits for private industry leaving the rest of us to clean up all the trash. Asking why recycling doesn't work ignores the fact that more garbage means bigger profits for corporations. So don't ask why recycling doesn't work. Instead, ask what recycling would look like if companies, not taxpayers, had to pay for the costs. This is the right question. Or ask this question, why doesn't Coca-Cola, the largest plastic polluter in the world, why doesn't Coca-Cola have to use some of the $33 billion in profits to do something about all that trash? Ask that, which in international law is known as the polluter pays principle, which like the name makes those responsible for pollution pay for it. This is the right question. The problem is, of course, that this garbage is not considered Coke's responsibility. So instead of asking why recycling doesn't work, ask what recycling would be like if extended producer responsibility was the norm. Extended producer responsibility, or EPR, means that manufacturers bear significant responsibility, both financial and or physical, for post-consumer products creating incentives against waste and promoting product design that supports reuse, recycling, and upcycling of materials. Remember, whenever we toss something, whether it's that iPhone or a plastic bottle of water, it's the same formula. More garbage equals greater profits. Could it be that this story of disposal in America gets added to the list Adam and Eve eating the apple. Icarus flying too close to the sun. Avarice, overreach. The inability to remain satisfied. Do you remember Veruca Salt from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? It's a story that echoes more than ever. She had no self-control. She ignored rules and common sense. 
She was impatient. Daddy will get you a golden goose as soon as we get home. No, I want one of those! And she got dragged away by squirrels. Of all things. Now, there are lots of different ways to tell a story. Choices need to be made. This story could have included, and who knows, maybe should have included, the rise of Reaganomics and the so-called free market, the global economy and free trade, or more attention to the climate crisis and our inability to act with cohesion and purpose. Yet despite these roads untaken in our narrative, there's little doubt in our conclusion. The center cannot hold. We've reached a point of diminishing returns when it comes to convenience. Even if you can, heat a frozen meal in far, far less time than a 1960s TV dinner. Being able to not have to work very hard or very long to get what you want is undeniably nice. It is nice. But we don't have a backup Earth. This is where we live, no matter how compelling you find the billionaire space race. All this trash is a heaping hot pile, heating the planet, making the future less bright. The center cannot hold. Now, at your favorite grocery store, the most amazing food wrap ever developed. Make a wish. Count to three. Saran wrap. Come with me, and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Saran wrap cleans like magic. It makes a neat package of anything you wrap, without strings or tape or rubber bands. You see, Saran wrap is a wonderful time saver as well as a food saver. Saran Wrap is a product of the Dow Chemical Company. That's our show. Thanks for listening. One last note, the next time you're in the beverage aisle, consider the fact that aluminum cans are the opposite of plastic bottles. They're easily recycled. The show was produced and edited by Matt Levine and written by Matt Levine and Owen Lewis. Special thanks to Owen. In addition to his great voice, he's a one-take wonder with terrific on-the-fly improvisational editing skills, too. We're grateful for his insights and input, as well as his patience for an unusually long post-production process. In fact, he now is of legal drinking age from when we started this project together. When not studying, running, or playing tennis, he's the co-founder of poptennis.com. If you don't know about pop tennis, check it out. It's a smaller court and also one-third of the Troika of Tennis Geeks at the podcast Tennis and Bagels. Tennis and Bagels is available, yeah, you guessed it, wherever you listen. Additional thanks to the Hamilton College Career Center. Brian Stowell, Dennis Kearney, Brian Madden, 
Nicole Whedon, Nancy Levine, Locke Phillips, Joshua Lewis, Mary J. Landon, Claudia Marshall and Matt Zucker, and last but not least, Dirk Schluter. Subscribe wherever you listen. Rate us and share us with your friends. I'm Matt Levine. I'll see you in the grocery aisle.